Welcome to episode 130 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions with evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Jill Ettinger. Jill has been a leading voice in digital media for more than a decade. She's been published in outlets including MTV, The Huffington Post, and The Village Voice. She served as head of content for a popular vegan media platform from 2017 to 2020, with a reach of more than 50 million per month. She has worked with a number of impact media platforms to help build their traffic and positioning, as well as with leading brands and celebrities working to make the world a more sustainable and ethical space. Jill is the co-founder, CEO, and head of content for Ethos. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 129 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've found us recently. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge a few more people towards more compassionate and rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, very good, very good. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. And I'm going to start with an apology because you're a, a content guru and <laughs> content firm CEO. So thank you for deigning to come and visit a sort of dodgy little YouTube channel filmed on a webcam. So it's, it's somewhat embarrassing. <laughs> My but it's, great, it's great to have you here. I hope it doesn't drag your brand down too much. But... <laughs> oh, absolutely not. Quite, quite the opposite. <laughs> so this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two most important philosophical questions, uh, what's real and how should we go about choosing what to believe in? How should we understand the universe? And who matters? So in the field of ethics, um, who gets our compassion? Who's in our scope of moral consideration? And I'm answering those two questions myself with an obvious bias. And the clue is in the name of this podcast in YouTube called Sentientism. And it's a simple worldview that suggests that we should use evidence and reason when trying to think about how to understand the world and choose what to believe. So a naturalistic way of understanding the world. And when it comes to our ethics, we should have a sentiocentric compassion. So we should care about all sentient beings, any being that can suffer or flourish or experience things. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who disagree and agree with different parts of that. So it would be fascinating to understand your own sort of philosophical journey and how that plays into your work too. But before we start with those questions, how would you best introduce yourself and your work to people who don't know of you already? Uh, yeah. Um, well, my name's Jill Ettinger. I've been um, pretty immersed in digital content for over, over a decade. Uh, last year already, uh, I co-founded Ethos. It's uh, the dash ethos.co. And uh, we really wanted to take a different approach to um, all of the ethical changes happening in the world and um, a little softer. I think a lot of stuff can kind of beat people over the head with you need to go vegan or you need to stop using plastic straws. And we really felt like um, there's a, a, a softer approach, um, which maybe ties into my theories on, you know, what is real or sentientism, but um, prior to that, I worked uh, predominantly in the vegan media space, um, but actually got my roots in the natural foods industry. I spent a really long time uh, out of my own desire to eat healthier and more responsibly uh, found myself um, 
just in the whirlwind of the organic food movement and and spent a lot of time doing sales and marketing there. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, and it would be great to come back to the role you see ethos playing in trying to make the world a better place and our final question too and i, okay. I came across your work I've, I've seen and read a great deal of it but i was sort of prompted to reach out after you appeared on another one of my favorite podcasts conspirituality and you told part yeah. of that story about mm-hmm. uh, you know the world of wellness and i guess both the epistemology and the ethics that can play into that world so it'd be good to explore that with you too as we go through these Big questions. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. Like Derek mentioned, uh, he and I have been great friends for 20 years, which is hard to believe. It's kind of yeah. gone so quickly, but um, and and there was a lot of overlap there with uh, one of my one of my roles uh, working for David Wolf. Yeah, great. Thank you. So let's start with the first of these crazily big questions what's real. Um, so for many <laughs> of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally, maybe a more supernaturally minded religious spiritual mystical sort of context family and society or one that was more naturalistic maybe more science-minded more atheistic or agnostic and how that side of their thinking has changed through their life and where they are now so you can wind the clock back as far as you like to sort of tell the story of your thinking there but yeah uh yeah i i always say uh the religion that kind of um governed my house was bob dylan (laughs) (laughs) Um, my father was, and still is, um, just a diehard fan and, um, any life lesson, any, any conversation somehow always was sent back to his lyrics or, or his philosophy and which anyone who even knows him somewhat superficially is that he's both deep and, um, and also, bit flippant and kind of, um, you know, very challenging to a lot of conventional ways of thinking. Uh, Both my parents uh, were raised Jewish. My father very much so an atheist, um, even when Dylan had like his born again Christian and, you know, all these different phases. Um, My mother, um, I I would call her a 7-Eleven Jew, like whenever it was convenient for her at least I did. I have, I have three younger siblings. Um, I don't know if they all went to Hebrew school, but I went for a little while and and I got kicked out for, uh, taking that very antagonistic approach and, and just challenging a lot of the just things that, that were being taught that I I felt were kind of ridiculous. So I, I did get kicked out of Hebrew school. I think it was one of my father's more proud moments. Um, but in terms of you know, was there a spirituality? I think it was very much, my parents split when I was very young and I I lived with my dad. And so it was very much, uh, you're on your own. I'm a a child of the eighties. It was, you were on your own anyway. (laughs) It was kind of like, let yourself into the house. And certainly he was there for any questions, but it was very much, you're on your own journey. And when in doubt, reference the Bob Dylan catalog for yeah. answers. <laughs> no, that's fascinating. Thank you. And, and the the other biggest Bob Dylan fan I've spoken to in this interview series is uh, the philosopher Constantine Sandis. Oh, um, okay. Who um, has done published work about Bob Dylan's life, Dylan at 80 and various other things. So he's, he's probably the competition with your dad for the biggest Bob Dylan fan I've come across so far. They are legion and... Um, 
I, I'm not not a fan. I think musically, I, there are other artists I prefer, but uh, I certainly love and respect him as you know some sort of figure in in figurehead in my upbringing and in weird ways. So, um, you know, in terms of what's real, I mean, I I remember specifically in the 80s driving around in my dad's car and we were listening to the um infidels album and and that that really kind of made me question a lot of things that I don't think I even still have an answer of what is real it all feels somewhat like a simulation some days but yeah. I think as I get older and I'm a mom now I have a nine-year-old it's what we what we decide is real and, and we have to really accept that that's a hard thing to accept that others may have other views and you know perfect examples are animals that can see like ultraviolet color I mean their reality is completely different from ours so um, it is the older I get or maybe the wiser I get I don't know probably the older I get yeah. it's that um, it's very much a, a personal a personal uh, definition yeah, thank you. And when you had that, your dad's proud moment of you getting kicked out of Hebrew school. <laughs> when you, what was the nature of the challenges? Because for I've, I've had, you know, some guests who still have a religious worldview now, but most of them have, you know, started out like almost everybody does within a default religious worldview, and they moved away from it. Um, and some people moved away more because of facts and evidence and reason you know this just doesn't feel real to me anymore the evidence isn't there they learned about different religions and maybe inconsistencies in the religious texts and so on so it was sort of a facts and evidence thing or it was a an ethical moral thing where they're going well you know the, some of the ethics that are flowing through what i'm being told doesn't fit with the way i think the world should be good and bad what were the nature of your challenges to it was it something along those lines or something else it was. It was very much the where the chosen people. And I just felt that to be an egregious statement. And at the time, I mean, there, you know, there's been suffering going on in the world forever. And I just felt, how can one group be given more, uh, more of a preference than another or, or matter more? we're all kind of stranded here on this floating, yeah. <laughs> floating marble. And it just, uh, it just really struck me as not making sense at a young age. And it, I didn't really have a way to articulate that. And so I think my default was to just become a, a back talker and a, a very challenging um, person at the, at that time, which I think, I don't think my dad was, um, encouraging that, like go out and get in trouble. But yeah. I think it was the the byproduct of that that music that we were listening to and in his worldview. And um, and I just felt like sitting in that class that it was it was hypocritical, especially because of if you know the history of the Jewish people, which most do, it's that they endured so much suffering and slavery and all these terrible things and to then still hold on and cling to this uh, ideal that they're the chosen people and others are not. And I still have issues with the religion. I mean, I still have issues with Israel um, and what's happening in Palestine. So it that has never changed for me. I never went back to it. I mean, it just 
I, there's something I love about the culture and, you know, I have great memories of sitting yeah. around the Passover table with my grandparents. And um, those are, are really precious moments, but um, as a, as a way to live my life, a rule to live by, not at all. So I, I, uh, I remember specifically, and there was also other things like this concept of this omnipresent God that was kind of directing every moment of my life. And uh, I very much wanted the autonomy. I'm the oldest of four kids. So I was very much clinging to my identity and, and being able to be in charge of my own destiny. And, and felt like that, not that it was a cop-out, but it just felt like, how could I give all of my ideas and decisions over to some invisible force that I couldn't validate or prove existed? Yeah, there's a sort of uncomfortable ask to submit um, in mm-hmm. a way that yeah. you know, doesn't fit right with many people. Yeah, Not not for me, yeah. And one of the fascinating things that I've, as I've explored these conversations is is the the prevalence of actually people with a atheistic and completely naturalistic worldview within religious communities? And I, you know, my understanding from the the stats and the surveys is that's particularly true of Jewish communities. Is that the prevalence of atheism within Jewish communities is you know a surprisingly high percentage? So there are many people who you know take the the ritual and the community and the positive aspects they find in the culture and community, but yeah, have abandoned the both the supernatural beliefs and have also you know, carved out some of the ethical stuff that they don't think resonates, but have kept that commitment to the community and that sense of identity and, and belonging mm-hmm. to. So it's a fascinating dynamic. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood that is very, very Jewish. I mean, to ha- we had synagogues on every corner and I did not know that that's not how much of the rest of the world was. It's a, you know, very, I've not seen it really outside of two neighborhoods in the, in the world really. So um yeah it it just felt like there's a lot to like about any culture i think i mean that's kind of the takeaway for me is any culture that you're immersed in if we're really paying attention and being involved in the world we're going to find some great things and that was the one of the challenges is i don't want to just cancel that entirely because there's so much i i did love but um very much the the individual journey and and not feeling like you have to kind of surrender your whole life to yeah. to this belief yeah so as you completed that transition some of my guests have had extremely traumatic exits from a religious worldview and in some cases it's presented you know physical risk to them others it's been really easy because the things just sort of faded away into the background and i'd guess from what you've said because of your own i guess personality and your you know, your father's way of thinking, that shift wasn't particularly difficult for you. Is that fair to say, psychologically or socially <laughs> or emotionally? Or or did it feel like it was a, you know, a wrench or a, some sort of traumatic difficulty of moving away from those beliefs? Well, it, you know, it happens during the teen years. So it's <laughs> extremely traumatic, but not, yeah. not in that way. Like, you know, I didn't feel like I was being deprogrammed or anything like that. I think uh, even when we were going to Hebrew school, like I said, it, my dad wasn't really a fan of that or involved um, so much. So it was very reformed and very casual. Yeah. So it yeah. wasn't like I was exiting from, you know, a Hasidic upbringing or something. Yeah. But, For a different I mean, context. Yeah. 
it's just that coming to terms with my own understanding of the world and how I want that relationship to be, which happened as a, as a teen. And it of course was quite traumatic just (laughs) every day living through that. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. And once you moved through that, would you have described yourself as an atheist or agnostic or did you just find yourself in a sort of neutral space where you just left that way of thinking behind and didn't identify in any alternative way or. I mean, I don't tend to put labels on it, but yeah. certainly much more agnostic. I, I don't feel like there's not anything beyond our understanding or um, even some sort of, I, I, you know, I use the word so carefully, but some sort of God, I, I don't know. I'm not here to answer that question. I think um, there are people smarter than me that have been trying to answer it for millennia and um i'm certainly open to it if a paper comes out tomorrow that says oh we've we've figured out what god is i I will i will happily read that but yeah i've just kind of surrendered i think more agnostic i i feel like atheism can sometimes toe that line of also being dogmatic and um and i just sort of wanted to step back away from that yeah and there are different um definitions of the, or different ways people use the word atheist so some say it's it's an active belief there is no god other people mm-hmm. say it's just the absence of a belief in god which describes me um sometimes i describe myself as an extreme agnostic because you know i'm sort of with you but if there was some, some experiments at the large hadron collider or some other <laughs> yeah. reliable source of evidence that demonstrated the existence of a god then i would shift my credences in that direction so you know i never close off uh, you know, a door to a possibility 100% because I want to be open to the evidence. But at the same time, I'm quite extreme agnostic. I think the likelihood is extremely low, but, you know, there's still a, a tiny... I, I think it's nice to have that humility to conceptually be open to the idea. You know, if the evidence changes, we should change our minds. But Yeah, I mean, there's research too that shows being open-minded uh, gives you a better quality of life. Um, certainly as I get older, I feel like it's more valuable as a parent, it feels more valuable. So not holding on, I feel like any real strong belief, um, can be, can be problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think dogma is a problem, whether you claim, you know, a supernatural inspiration or a, a scientific inspiration, if you're trapped in a one way of thinking, um, it's a problem regardless yeah so often this part of the conversation centers on religion just because it's the sort of most obvious example of thinking about the natural versus the supernatural or you know choices about what to believe um but as you've hinted out already that's not the only question when we're thinking about what to believe and how to believe so there are some really interesting um sort of adjacent worlds around thinking through spirituality or thinking through other forms of mysticism or um things that go beyond the strictly natural and um i won't make you retell the story here because people should go and listen to the conspiracy spirituality (laughs) episode you did with your experiences with david wolf and sort of living in a world Mm -hmm. there but it strikes me i guess there were there are a couple of questions i was interested in exploring with you around this idea of what to believe because it strikes me that there there's a whole world of possible beliefs in that space and many of them start out as a sort of well-meaning sense of interconnectedness and a sort of sense of holism and maybe a a warm reverence for nature and a sort of generosity of spirit and an open-mindedness so they start out in a a positive warm place but with some people and I think David may have ended up being one of those people 
there's a sort of slippery slope, whether through audience capture or financial incentives or some other thing going on in their minds that leads them into ending up selling, you know, scam supplements that don't work or promoting anti-vax rhetoric or believing in QAnon lizard pedophile <laughs> conspiracy theories, right? So, so I guess my first question is, what's the right amount of open-mindedness? And the second question, which I shouldn't ask together, but I'm going to because I think they sort of fit, is how do we judge when something goes from being open-minded, positive, maybe something fun and interesting that makes people feel good to something that might actually start to be dangerous? How do we, what's your sense from the experiences you've had how to judge that balance? Tough questions. Um, That's really interesting. I mean, I don't, are there degrees of open-mindedness or is it just that you're either open or you're not, and then you have to use the empirical data and even your gut feeling on stuff to know whether or not that's, that's the right thing. I mean, I, I spoke on the uh, conspirituality podcast of one of my first experiences with David, when I finally moved out to San Diego to start running the company was he was like, okay, sit down, I've got to show you something. And it was this moon landing conspiracy video. And I didn't get up and walk out. I, I kept an open mind, but I was I was just dumbfounded. I mean, there's just so much information that shows that it happened. And what does this even matter? You know, what does this have to do with my health? And what does this have to do with his business? And why are not that we're wasting time on it. I think any kind of exploration into uh, anything that's that has some merit, you know, some questions is is worthwhile. But yeah, I I don't know that there's um that there's a degree of open mindedness. I think we've got to hear people out if we want to be compassionate. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's a it's a tough question. I mean, if someone comes over and tells me we need to engage in some violence. I mean, I don't know how long I'm going to listen to that before I shut it down. Like, let's go smash whatever, you know, the streets in Hollywood to protest vaccines and damage property. I mean, I'm not uh, obviously not going to partake and how much of that am I going to listen to? Probably not very much. Um, So I think there are, I guess maybe, maybe there are degrees. I don't know. I'm struggling with this question. to me, it feels like you've got to be open and you kind of know, I guess, within a short period of time, how much you want to give to that to that question or how much time you want to focus on that. But I think being open is important even. And a lot of times people say they're open minded, but really they're listening just to respond. They're just waiting their turn. And it's not really are you listening to let that other person be heard? Because sometimes people are just figuring stuff out themselves. I mean, I'm quite certain David does believe in the moon landing hoax, but perhaps he, it was just sharing because it's his way of saying, I I don't trust a lot of authority and, and there are things I have questions on. So you never know, I guess, really where things are stemming from, but being open, I think is, is important. And what was the other part of the question? Well, it was, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was the right amount of open-mindedness. And you, oh, right you sort enough. of pushed back on that and said, okay, maybe there isn't. There is just open-mindedness. You're either open or closed. But the other thing was, how do we judge where 
it starts to become it starts to go from oh. something that's harmless and sort of fun and people enjoy it to there's a danger here yeah i mean where is that turning point i don't i don't know i mean i think back to when i was working with david and there were people that were like not doing vaccines and it felt like well there's no real threat right polio has been eradicated <clears throat> measles have been eradicated so we thought it just felt kind of harmless but fast forward to having my own child to a global pandemic um i think your tolerance changes depending on 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 this situation i mean and i don't know that these people know when it gets difficult and i would i was very much in i wasn't necessarily out there like um anti-vax like david and and some of those other people but i wasn't standing up in in those uh retreats or events and you know absolutely putting my fist down that vaccines are critical it was just kind of like not really an issue um i'd be so curious to know how many people have changed their mind um from maybe being in that same space as I was, where it was just kind of like, oh, he doesn't believe in vaccines to each his own kind of thing. At the time, I mean, that's kind of how it was, right? It was like, you do it, you don't do it, move on with your life. Government wasn't so concerned about it. I mean, here in California, you could get an exemption at school if you wanted. Things have have drastically changed, not just on vaccines, but lots of these other things. Um, that you mentioned selling these products that may or may not work uh, and obviously taking money from people. So um, I don't know that there's one defining moment where the open-mindedness leads to, I mean, do we call it corruption? Do we call it just poor judgment? I'm, I'm not sure, but um, I mean, maybe that's the little bit of, Woo woo! That's still in me. That says you do have to trust your gut on some of these things, and and I'm not saying that's the be all end all. I very much prefer to have science in my corner, but I also feel like sometimes you can just tell when when something is uh, not a good <laughs> not a good direction to go. Yeah, thank you. I wasn't expecting you to have the perfect easy answer. That those are <laughs> super hard questions, and I like yeah. the way you talked about. You know, in a way, it is a choice just to be open minded or not. And we, of course, should be open minded. But I, I, I guess I another another way I think of it is as a bit of a spectrum. So on the one extreme, there's just denial, right? I'm refusing to believe anything. On the other extreme is total gullibility. You know, I will believe anything that is suggested to me, even without evidence. And it does seem that there is a sort of middle ground of open you know it's almost like being so open-minded you'll just believe anything with even if it's unsubstantiated that's sort of what I mean by being too open-minded it's like whereas there's it does seem like there's this middle ground where we need to be open-minded but then grant credences or have beliefs that are what you know based on as much as we can and as much as we're able to weighing the evidence fairly and we'll never do that perfectly because there's lots of different evidence. And there's, as you said earlier on, there's loads of different people's perspectives we need to bear in mind. Um, we'll reason in different ways and we all have biases and flaws. But at least trying as far as we can to honestly weigh the evidence and appreciate it seems to be that sort of middle ground open-mindedness. And and I, one of the interesting things is how many people who fall down that sort of rabbit hole or that pipeline that we were talking about before seem to be able to do both extremes of the spectrum at the same time so they will have absolute denial on 
one thing and total gullibility on the other, which I find quite interesting because it's almost like a it is almost like a balance, you know, to to have total denial of one thing. You need to be totally gullible about the opposite, and it can get out of whack. And and the you know that skepticism of authority, I think, is a classic example because. Uh, if you're totally trusting of authority, and in authority I mean the establishment of science as well, that's a mistake, right? Because science and authority, they're human enterprises that are flawed, and they have mistakes, and they have biases, and they're warped by motivations, and they're imp- you know they're, nothing's perfect. So of course they're imperfect. But to respond to that by having you know completely abandoning the value of any authority or institution or science and instead believing things that are completely unfounded seems to be to jump to the other extreme so it's it i don't think there is an easy answer right but it i guess this is what i'm trying to get at with this right amount of open-mindedness the the balance between gullibility and denial that finds this sort of middle ground of skepticism and weighing things based on the evidence i guess that's why you know why i aspire towards but it's not a perfect answer it's not an easy balance right? mm-hmm. yeah we talked about that on on conspirituality um with about David with him leveraging science when it kind of supported his narrative yeah and um but then just totally slamming it when it didn't and I mean I think we all do that in life to some degree I mean maybe that is just the the human conundrum and that we have to kind of you know, uh, stand for something or, or we kind of fall for everything. And so we draw these little lines in the sand and, and some of them certainly are based on consensus that science is generally okay. And then on the flip side, that it's not, that it is a big conspiracy. And it just, I mean, my feeling is that's just way too much effort and time to ruin people's lives. And, you know, things like vaccines causing all this damage. I mean, they could put stuff in the water. They could put stuff in the air. Why is it like this voluntary shot that's supposed to save your life that is going to ruin everything? I don't know. I I think um, drawing these lines gets, um, it's a way, I guess it's a defense mechanism. It's kind of like uh, gossip if you've ever researched gossip, which I have, is this way to kind of keep the the tribal community safe. Like if you felt that the the um, the chief was somehow sick or in danger or whatever, it'd be like, let's talk about it. Let's make sure that we all know what's going on so that we can kind of keep our ourselves and our, our family safe. And that's where this gossip talking behind other others' backs kind of originated. Um, so it is this defense mechanism right it's this this tool that we use used to really protect um, those we care about obviously it has evolved to this terrible uh, behavior but I think it's very much the same with these these different beliefs and and even these conspiracy theories is that we um we use them unwilling unconsciously to to defend ourselves from, you know, whatever perceived or unperceived threat there is that we think we need protection from. And so I think a lot of it is very much in that, in that same vein is that these extremes are really just narratives that are this kind of programmed biological function of, of self-preservation. 
Yeah. And I think there's also a strong dose of, you know, group identity markers in there as well. You know, that's one way we show loyalty and we mm-hmm. bind together in groups is by shared commitment to, you know, beliefs, whether or not they're well-founded. So, yeah, that's fine. And I, th- I guess the key is really no one can escape from these things, right? We're all sort of evolved apes with roughly the same <laughs> sort of stuff going on in our heads. Um, so the, the question for my mind isn't about whether we can totally perfectly erase all these biases. It's just not possible. You know, no one thinks perfectly and critically and clearly. It's not, but but we can at least if we have enough awareness and motivation mentally to to try and be aware of those biases and try and correct them, rather than just going all in with the blinkers on. I guess that's maybe that's something we can all aspire to. But yeah, it's the self awareness I think is key in knowing that you don't know everything and that um, and keeping that open mind. Yeah. Yeah, doubt and humility has to be absolutely essential. So let me try and summarize what you told me, which is it feels like you use a, a naturalistic approach generally to working out what to believe and what's real. You try and weigh evidence. Um, at the same time, you're very open-minded to different perspectives and points of view, and you recognize they may not reconcile and different people will see things in very different ways. And you're also open, at least conceptually, to the idea there might be something beyond the natural world, but you're going to sort of, you want to see some evidence before you choose to believe in those things. Is that a sort of fair summary? So it feels like a yeah, I think broadly so. <laughs> naturalistic in that sort of sense. Thank but, you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so let's move on to the second big question, which is, uh, I guess, about ethics. So one of the classic challenges for someone who doesn't have a religious worldview is, well, if you don't have, you know, God telling you what to do, or you don't have a religious book with a series of rules, and you're not going to go to heaven or hell afterwards, what do good and bad or right and wrong even mm-hmm. mean to you? Um so I'd be interested in your thoughts on on that question. How do you think about ethics and right and wrong and good and bad uh, in just very general terms? And again, how has that shifted over your life? Yeah. Um, and does it come back it to Bob ha- Dylan? <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. Um, it has certainly shifted. I mean, I, I'll say it. I don't think you need religion to know good from bad. I think there's been studies on this. Um, and I think Sam Harris talks a lot about this, that we're born with a, a moral code, uh, even if we don't define it. And um, I saw it as a parent with a, a newborn and, you know, just watching her develop and, and she's being raised vegan. But after age like four, when she kind of really could think for herself um, she she chose it rather than just living in a house where we're not eating other eating animals. So, and it, we're not a religious household. So I think you kind of can come to that without the fear of of heaven or hell or hell or um, or the reward of heaven. So, why do you think she made that choice? Because it links into the second part of this question, which is who matters too. Because I think one theme that runs through most religious ethics and non-religious ethics is is an idea of compassion and caring about others you know almost seems Mm -hmm. a truism that that's what ethics is about if it's not about our concern for others i'm not sure it even deserves to be called ethics um but what was what do you think was driving thinking about that if you asked her now if we brought her on and said why Mm -hmm. don't you eat animals what what would she say is the reason she would probably say that's disgusting and make a noise and run out of the room um but because i've I was always very matter of fact of, I mean, she started to realize early on 
why we avoided whole sections of the supermarket. And when one day she pointed to something and in the deli case and asked what it was. And I said, well, that used to be a, a pig's, you know, stomach or back or whatever. And, and, um, and we always say, or we did always say when she was young, when she would say, well, how come I don't eat meat, but my best friend, this person who I absolutely love and want to spend time with does. And my simple answer was, well, you know, we know some things about animals that they might not know yet. And so for us, that's made the decision to not eat them. And I mean, I guess that's potentially going to change as she becomes a teenager and spends more time out with her friends who are alone, who are going to be eating animals or, or she just wants to annoy me, which is entirely a possible uh, trajectory for that. But um, she seems very much to just understand that, that basic level of compassion and that it, it, it's different than when I went vegetarian in the many, many millions of years ago. I mean, there, you know, she can walk down the street and get like 20 different vegan meals without even any stress or, or discomfort or going out of her way at all. It's, it's so much easier. So I think um, because the food is so delicious and it is so abundant, at least here in Los Angeles, she's never had, she's never felt left out. She's never felt like she's had to sacrifice. I mean, her friends or I saw at her birthday a couple weeks ago, one of her friends was like going on and on about how they had all these burgers or something at a cabin. They had been like grilling and, and the friend asked her directly, like, don't you find it hard to be vegan? And she was just like confused by the question. Like, what are you talking about? It's like, I'm standing here. I'm taller than you. I'm <laughs> stronger than you, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I think she's really, she loves her cats. I mean, they are her, her world. And I think she's really come to see no difference between them and a chicken or a fish or a pig. It could change. She's only nine, but that's the choice she's made. Uh, her dad is not vegan. And when she spends time with him, I mean, there's animal products all around and he cooks vegan for her and she just carries on. So I, I was really uh, curious if that relationship, once he started to eat animal products again, if that would change her uh, relationship with food and it hasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. That's fascinating. And I think I mean, I'd echo what, what, what's run through that, which is this sense that we don't need a supernatural or a religious worldview or anybody else to tell us how to be ethical. We can, it's just in a simple sense of choice to be compassionate or not. Um, and I think that runs richly through a naturalistic way of thinking about ethics as much as it might run through other ways of thinking about ethics. And that's partly why, you know, I summarised the sentientism thing is evidence and reason and compassion for all sentient beings, because I think that idea of compassion is should be central to any sort of ethical system, whether you want to be a utilitarian or a deontologist or a feminist care ethic or virtue ethicist or contractarian, whatever, whatever, you know, the philosophers can go and philosophize, but the essence has to be, let's have compassion. And um, and I'd suggest we should have compassion for all sentient beings. So it was fascinating to hear your sort of daughter's journey through that, but what was, what was your journey to expanding that scope of compassion? Uh, how early did that happen? How difficult was it? And what were the sort of steps along the way? 
Um, I, I think it was something that happened early on. For me, I kind of tell my story as um, like I was always vegan. I didn't have a word for it. I wasn't until like my teens that I like came out of the refrigerator is how I kind of define it. Um, I think it's very much tied to those uh, questions I had at Hebrew school and just around these beliefs around me that didn't line up. Uh, I I was just absolutely disgusted by a lot of the food in my upbringing where everyone else in my family's chowing down and eating stuff. I mean, things like not just chicken legs, which were like the grossest thing to me, but ice cream. I didn't like butter. Things that a lot of kids, cheese was like, I would peel most of it off my pizza. These were things that most kids lived lived on. It was all they would eat. I mean, you know, there was a period where like I had to go see a psychologist because I thought I had like some eating disorder at like seven years old. And and I don't think that was it. I mean, I had a, a healthy appetite. Some of my, while some of my worst memories are of sitting there with this animal food on my plate that I didn't under, I didn't even make the connection. I didn't know that a burger was coming from the same thing as a, as ice cream. You know, I, I had no real understanding. I mean, it was just not really talked about. There was like one segment, I think on Sesame street where they show like a cow being milked and that being like trucked to the store and the, it's in the kid's bottle, but it wasn't something we really talked about. They didn't really teach that in school. Um, but so some of my worst memories from childhood were, I mean, even trauma, like a teacher making me sit at the lunch table till I ate a piece of bread with butter on it. And I like had to like suck it down, holding my nose because it just tasted so offensive. But some of my best memories were the opposite. Like I have a really great memory of like the first backyard tomato that we ate one summer and it was just like the most delicious juicy sweet you know tangy um uh, artichokes uh, pole beans you know just general like beans that had grown in the garden some of my best memories and it was all around fruits and vegetables um and so it was a real struggle yeah i can um, imagine and it sounds like that initial trigger was maybe more one of sort of disgusted like an emotional sense rather than you hadn't maybe you hadn't yet made the explicit connection to what it meant for the animals that had been farmed or, yeah mm -hmm. but you just for some reason there was a sense of disgust or sort of a, a taste rejection of those things I mean it was it was maybe something intuitive I don't know but it it felt like um it was a it was a problem it was a problem until I was in my teens that um I couldn't reconcile this need to eat and not having anybody talk to me about options and this disgust for food. And it was like in high school um, when I started dating um, a guy who's still my best friend and his family um, is Turkish. And I would spend a lot of time at the house and they would have just the most I mean, they were not vegetarian at all, but so much vegetable forward food and like beans with lemon and parsley and and yeah, I mean, yeah. it's just like the, yeah, it completely cracked me open to like there's options like, here. I can <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to just eat burgers. I mean, you know, maybe it was just my parents were terrible cooks. I don't know, but um, that's what really 
saved me and um, made me, I mean, I had those early like moments of loving certain vegetables and certain foods as a child, but I had never really been exposed to healthy plant-based food. And, and that really changed me. But as I got older, I mean, so I had this kind of history of being really grossed out. Like I never would eat eggs ever. Like my whole family's chowing down all kinds of eggs, salad, fried eggs. And I, I never, ever liked them. And then in like seventh grade, um, my best friend and I tried to go vegetarian, but there were, there were no options. It was French fries and salad and cheese pizza, but I didn't really like cheese. So our parents wouldn't allow us to just starve. And it was kind of like, you're going to eat or you're going to, we're going to force it on you. So, um, so I kind of went back and forth eating and there were some things I would eat, like, you know, some white breast chicken stuff or whatever, like some hot dogs. I mean, I, I could eat some of that stuff, but it never really was never really pleasurable. And then, um, by my late teens, I think I had heard the word vegan. Um, and there was the Smith's album meat is murder. And it sort of started like all the stars aligned where I realized like, that's why I said I had this aha moment where I was like, Oh, I'm vegan. Like it, it actually makes sense now, like all of this stress and trauma that had come from certain foods while the other ones just were like a pure delight. So um, yeah, I went vegan and never, never looked back. And was that the point where you made the ethical connection as well uh, in terms mm -hmm. of suffering death exploitation or? Yeah, I, I think I made that. Sort of in intuitively had that already. Yeah. In seventh grade, when we tried to go vegetarian and we did for like a couple of weeks and then our parents were like, no. And um it was again that like, okay, well, if I don't eat, I'm going to die. And if I want to explore who I am and what matters to me, then I have to eat to survive. And that's where I, I look at my daughter and I think, gosh, I, I would have given anything as much yeah. as I don't like the Beyond Burger. <laughs> I would give anything to have them on every street corner. Like Can you imagine? Does. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think I kind of went back to eating meat after that couple weeks um and avoiding it when i could but i think that was when i really made yeah. Yeah. made that ethical connection thank you and jumping back a bit did, did hebrew school talk to you about non-human animal ethics at all did that suggest a way humans should think about non-humans was that not such a factor i don't remember if, yeah. i don't remember that i feel like i would remember if that came up but yeah. Well, that's fascinating. Thank you. So there's there's two other questions I had here in the sort of who matters section, um, because there's uh, there's this almost this spectrum that some people choose from. There's anthropocentrism where we focus on humans. There's sentiocentrism where I am, where we care about all beings that can suffer. Which the short good shorthand for that is animals. You know, there might be some questions around the edges, but that's where uh, that's where I am, and I think you are as well. Um, even within that, there's a challenge of thinking about all non-human animals. So, you know, most people are on the same page with companion animals. Certainly vegans are on the same page with farmed animals. But then there's some more challenging things about how should we think about wild animal suffering and um, wild animal suffering, both that's caused by humans, but then wild animal suffering that has nothing to do with humans whatsoever. And how do we think about that? So 
I guess that's one question is how do you think about wild animal suffering as a phenomenon, as a problem, as a, uh, as a thing? Like a lion chasing down a deer kind of thing, or just the injured yeah, I mean, lion? It, could, it could be, I mean, writ large, the, you know, the number of animals in the sentient animals in the wild is way bigger than those in our farm. So it's almost impossible to estimate, but you know, the estimates are something like a quintillion or a sextillion maybe of sentient beings out there living in the wild. So the, the main causes of suffering, you know, yes, it will include predation, but there's also you know, starvation, uh, climate problems, freezing heat, um, disease, there's, you know, all sorts of different, um, reasons why wild animals might suffer, I guess. But I know, so I guess the simple question is, you know, does your compassion include wild animals as well as farmed animals? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't feel sympathy for seeing a a squirrel or something on the side of the road? I mean, that just, I think it's kind of shocking to me that you can get um, sympathy and responses from people to that while they've got a burger in their hand. But Oh, it's I think amazing, real- isn't it? I find it I find yeah. it bizarre that people can absolutely gush with emotion and and be willing to really make personal sacrifices and invest time and money to look after, as you say, a squirrel or a duck or a you know a, a local wild animal they come across, or their own pets while they're yeah. eating. So yeah, but I think the real question for me, I mean, there's always suffering. That's the nature of of life. Um, uh, but how much of it is is caused by human? Um, fault or neglect or um are animals being are the are the diseases coming because of things we're doing to the climate that we're doing to their food sources are whales being trapped in fishing gear i mean all of that um is is it's a pretty big deal it's a it's a i would imagine it's a pretty large number of um the suffering is because of human action so uh, there, I certainly feel some responsibility as a as a human that has a voice. That's you know a part of what ethos is for is to kind of remind people that our choices matter. Yeah, but Thank I you. mean, suffering that happens because a squirrel foolishly falls off the wire. Although I guess that's our wire that we <laughs> yeah. okay. Let's say it falls off a, a tree limb because he's not paying attention. I mean, I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to help him. Up, I guess, but um, yeah. I mean, I I think I I was taking a hike yesterday uh, in my neighborhood, and I saw this kid on his skateboard just like completely wipe out, like so bad, like tumbled down the the street. He was fine, you know. He had some scrapes. He had a helmet. He was okay, but you know, I mean, suffering happens. Like he was in a joyful moment. He's a teenager. He's having fun on a, what was yesterday? A Wednesday afternoon, just like probably delaying his homework or whatever, you know, accidents happen. And I think nature is not exempt from that, but where humans are the cause of that suffering directly or indirectly, I, I feel a huge amount of, um, of guilt over it. Um, but guilt that I feel like I've turned into action. And I think that's the most important thing is that we can't just sit around and, and feel like we've screwed the world. Let's be self-indulgent or not, or just shut off and, and not, um, not do anything about it. So for me, it's, it's everything I do is about trying to make the world a better 
place or that we're at least more aware of um, of how much of it. I mean, I didn't build power lines. I didn't, I'm not responsible for fishing nets, but I am a human that has a voice um, to be able to help change that. Yeah. You might not be responsible, but you have the opportunity to maybe help in various ways. And that, that's what we'll come on to next. And the final question I had for you about this who matters thing, uh, before we move off the philosophy and get back into the real world is if we go from anthropocentrism to the sentiocentrism where we care about all the centip- you can go further. So you can go into biocentrism where you might care about, you know, for example, if we assume that plants aren't sentient, you could care about grass and trees and, and so on in the biosphere, or you could go even further than that into ecocentrism, which is caring about you know, the earth as Gaia, ecosystems, habitats, even rocks, rivers, trees, you know, stuff that isn't living at all. And it feels to me as if there's quite often a correlation between people who go to those really expansive ways of thinking about the biosphere and the ecosphere, and quite a lot of the thinking in the uh, spirituality and the wellness world that you spend a lot of time in, because there seems to be this drive to have this sense of interconnectedness with all of these different systems, a sense of oneness, maybe, you know, often a reverence for nature. Um, so how do you think about going even beyond sentience and thinking about plants, rocks, rivers, and ecosystems as objects of moral concern or compassion directly? Well, I think it's that everything is connected. I mean, I think that's where psychedelics are a great tool. I mean, they, they can really illuminate that. I mean, I've seen it firsthand in the jungle of Colombia where like everything was, you know, and in my experience there um, drinking ayahuasca was that everything was completely connected, the rocks, the trees, the sky, there was no separation. And, um, and I mean, I don't think you can in the real world live like, tiptoeing around to not I mean you know rocks are meant to be stepped on or climbed and um, plants in my worldview are meant to be eaten Um, but I think that there is the connection is that yeah I mean we're it's all part of this floating mass that has decided to come to life in all of these different ways and and maybe the rock isn't as uh, crucial a life form as a a blue whale but they all it all serves its purpose in a way and and we're seeing the signs left and right that the more we think and think we can just like pluck any one thing out and discard it or uh throw it away that 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 becomes incredibly problematic and everything except for mosquitoes i'm not really sure where they fit into all of this but (laughs) i think everything else really has um you know has some has some value uh, whether we whether we know it or not yeah thank you and I, I think I'd share that view as well and it's interesting because I think you can get to it through at least a couple of different routes you can you can take that more you know uh, as far as I understand it you know our asker or or related uh, hallucinogenics are, can be genuinely mind-blowing give you a really mm-hmm. rich deep or deep visceral sense of that connectedness but I think as a boring you know naturalistic person like me who's never experimented with those things i think i can also see that we are all connected just as a matter of physics right ultimately we're all atoms and quarks we are all the same stuff at the root level Mm -hmm. whatever that is and we absolutely are connected right you can just look at the relationships and the and the connections and i think that's the way i think about it is that you know i'm quite strict about this moral scope thing and i don't think there's anything ethically wrong in necessarily cutting a blade of grass in itself because i don't think the blade of grass suffers it doesn't care about itself so i don't think we need to care about it in the same way as cutting a pig 
is a deep ethical wrong because the pig suffers and cares about itself and doesn't want to be cut. And that's why we should care too. But at the same time, because of the interconnectedness of all of these ecosystems and environment and the non-sentient and the non-living stuff, we need to have a rich you know, consideration for how all of those things to plug together too, and not just a sort of very narrow instrumental approach that says, look, this is what us humans need and those things are just useful to us. And I guess the one thing that frustrates me a little bit, and I find this in the environmentalism movement generally, I think it is the center of gravity of the environmental movement today, and also in much of the spirituality in the wellness world is there's this sense of a really rich, generous compassion for the entire planet and all of the interconnected ecosystems, but a convenient carving out of compassion for many of the sentient beings. Um, so yes. people will say, well, I have an ecocentric concern for the planet and the ecosystems and how everything plugs together, but I will conveniently not have compassion for farmed animals. Um, and often, meat, yeah. yeah, as an example, or, or for or for many of the animals in the world, you know, people will care about species and population levels and those sorts of concepts much more than they will about, you know, the well-being or the suffering of individual sentient beings. And I, so I find that a little frustrating. I'm like, okay, if you want to go further and think about those connections, that's great, but we still have to have some special role for the beings that can actually experience suffering and and that they have to have some central position where we'd have compassion for them but yeah i thought it was i don't know if you read uh, michael pollan's omnivore's dilemma and his his books after and he kind of explored um a lot of that and he came and he's very much would consider himself i guess an environmentalist i don't know i mean he he very much cares about the world and he came to a place where he was like i'm okay with killing an animal to eat it he's not okay with the factory farm situation. I, I think he's got more experience than, than most people as what that looks like. And I don't agree. I, I'm not okay with it. And, uh, in really any situation, but I understand where he came from, where he went and he hunted, a, I think a boar for his meal, uh, with, with some people that had done it before, um, and, and kind of, came to that and i mean if you look at some of these tribal communities that um also are uh known to use psychedelics as a way to kind of resolve a lot of their own questions and and heal and connect with the the earth i mean a lot of them are are meat eaters or you know um keep animals for dairy and things like that or or eggs so i kind of sometimes can't help but wonder do they know something that i don't know i mean do they have a communication with that animal on some deep level that gives permission i i i don't believe that personally and i do agree that a blade of grass or a, a leaf of kale um, is completely different than the life of an animal i mean we can you can barely pet my cat the wrong direction and she will give you so much grief so yeah very clear communication yeah yeah and i mean and maybe that's just a a, a function of the urgency that if uh, the environmentalist is that there's so much going on and there's so much that needs addressed and because uh the animal part is such a deep philosophical reckoning i mean i've seen it over and over it it, it makes people so uncomfortable I'm, yeah. I'm sure you've seen it so that kind of 
broad stroke, like, let's just save the planet, let's get rid of the plastic. It's like an entry point to that dialogue. Um, and I, I believe, and this is me clinging to a belief system on one side of that spectrum that, um, that we will evolve to eat far fewer animals, not just out of necessity for the planet, but out of a moral obligation and understanding. And I think uh, we're, we're just not there yet. I mean, we can barely agree about how to handle a global pandemic when millions of yeah. people and loved ones have died. So um, can we get to a point where we have that a, a similar level of compassion for animals? I, I think eventually, but I see where environmentalists uh, are struggling is to just have any, any point of entry. Um, you know, businesses are making big leaps uh, every single day and, and that's moving the needle, but there's still so much to yeah. do. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm just, I, I don't know if I'm defending them. I just feel like I, I understand that, um, it's unfortunate that animals are maybe not the top priority for a lot of people right now. I think we're in just such a, a free fall in terms of like where we're going as a species, where we're going as a, as a planetary community. And are we becoming that, you know, we've got war happening right now that uh, in one part of the world, we've still got, you know, I got an alert on my phone that I was maybe exposed to COVID. I got it this morning. So, I mean, we've just got so many problems that, are people do they have the bandwidth yeah. to to check themselves on on their moral conscious about animals? I don't I don't know. I, one thing I think you know we'll we'll probably come on to next is that that gives me more hope is that I think there are win wins here as well because of you know many of the problems you've talked about maybe not ending war but whether it's <laughs> pandemic the climate crisis pollution zoonotic disease you know many of those things would actually be addressed even in selfish human terms if we. You know, bring an end to animal agriculture but the the only other thing i'd say because I, I you know i i can also have some degree of empathy for um of course justifications for harming animals that come from you know uh, a survival need i can unrecognize the sort of cultural resonance um and uh, many animal farming practices traditional and modern you know you talk to a rancher in the u.s midwest and they'll tell you a story about culture and identity right, as much as anything else so i can sense that and I, I understand what's going on there but the thing that cuts through in every case for me is the salience of the perspective of the victim and and w whatever the rationale is whether it's you know a, a tribal custom or it's someone in a more modern context or it's someone who's taken our asker and says you know i'm connected and this animal is giving itself to me i think if you honestly consider the perspective of the victim it's highly unlikely that they will agree with that perspective as they fight for their lives and they run away and they scream in pain so that doesn't make the thing easy but i think the important thing is you know think about those contexts and those justifications but we cannot erase the perspective of the victim because I think it is always a present issue and a present negative in in almost any one of those situations. But it doesn't mean there's easy answers. Fortunately, there are some easy answers like ending industrial animal and corrupt culture, which we should just do like just that. Just turn but, it off. So yeah, let's come, I mean, I would love to see that too. <laughs> <laughs> let's come on to this final question because we're, we're getting into it already um, uh, before I let you get on with your day, which is, almost as difficult but it is a bit more grounded in the real world how can we make a better future so some of my guests talk about sort of utopian visions or maybe dystopian visions about where we might end up um, others like to talk about more pragmatic ways of driving positive change and it would be fascinating to hear about you know your own 
life's work and what you're doing with ethos now about how you think you can pull these levers to get us going in a better direction for us and other sentient beings. <laughs> yeah, I think it is dystopia and utopia a, a little bit at the same time. Yeah. Um, you know, you got to look for the the good things. I mean, I think, but we can't ignore the negatives. And um, so that, that makes it a challenge uh, for, for all of us. But um, yeah, I think I'm eternally the optimist and I've seen so much progress since, um, since I've been on the planet. And even though things have gotten a lot worse in some areas, there's a lot that's gotten better. And I think we're still, like I, I just said, I think we're still kind of sorting it out and there's so much to us kind of growing up as a, as a race, um, and, and figuring out who we want to be and how we want to enjoy this planet. And I, I, uh, I recently interviewed, um, like I think four or five Gen Z's <laughs> and I was completely shocked and blown away at how, uh, just aware and intelligent and capable they are. And, um, Always and gives then me I, hope. Yeah. yeah. And then, I mean, I've got a nine-year-old gen alpha. Um, they also are, are pretty incredible and, um, they have some big, heavy decisions and choices, um, that they're going to have to make. I mean, they are going to be the ones in charge and I, I, I think they're going to be okay, um, but not without a lot of suffering and sacrifice along the way, whether that's farm animals or uh, these diseases that are that are wiping out millions of humans as well. So um, at Ethos, we're really focused on um, just telling these stories in, in the gentlest way possible and shining light on some of the victories. And but most important, giving people choices and letting them know that they can um, still shop the way they want to shop, still eat the way they want to eat, but with these choices that are better. I mean, one example uh, just this last week was um, Stella McCartney's Paris uh, Fashion Week show, which grand scheme with all the suffering in the world feels a little indulgent. I get it, but uh, it was her most sustainable show yet. It was 87% sustainable and her big comment on it was i don't want people to to know that it was sustainable i don't want them to be able to tell she had a purse made from grape skin leather that had i i believe a chain made out of mycelium mushroom root the cotton was all regenerative uh grown cotton which helps the soil to better absorb carbon she had um these rhinestones that were uh, used without any solvent or toxins. I mean, so, you know, you've got Bella Hadid walking down the runway in this stunning outfit that is completely giving back to the planet and taking care of the planet. Um, There's no real sacrifice there. And I think, I mean, we I'm sure both know uh, the same things are happening with food. I mean, you've got burgers that taste just like burgers. You've got the whole cultivated meat sector that is about to see big regulatory approval in Europe and in the US um, and brands that say that they've been able to reach price parity. So you've got um, all of these options that are just 
just starting to trickle in. I mean, we're just now figuring out how to fix fashion, how to fix food. So um, that's something we're really focused on telling because I think people feel like, still feel like, oh, I have to bring my own tote bags to supermarket. I can't use straws. I can't eat meat. They feel like it's this big sacrifice. And I think there are so many uh, individuals and scientists and companies out there working to prove you don't have to really change anything. You just eat this burger instead of that burger, but you still have a delicious burger, or you just use this purse instead of that purse. And you still have a luxury, beautiful bag that doesn't contain any animal skin, doesn't contain any toxic toxic chemicals that are you know poisonous to you, to animals, to the planet. So um, I think we're like really just at the beginning of that. And it's just been like decades of kind of organizing our thoughts and organizing that plan of action. And it's only going to get more organized and, yeah. and more easy. Yeah, that's a hopeful vision because there's, there's this sort of classic dynamic of there's a bad thing happening there's a sort of philosophical moral argument for why you sh- why you should change and you will have to sacrifice to do that that's that's quite a tough yeah. trade to get you know busy stressed people to engage with and some people do right some many of my guests are you know weirdos in this sense which i mean in the most <laughs> generous possible sense you included right because because there's this, that that sort of philosophical commitment that ethical commitment has driven you to make practical changes but we just know that's too slow so i I sort of share your hope that if we can find a way of providing choices for people that just feel like good choices right they're free they're not sacrifices they're freeing they're positive you can step into them they might be cheaper tastier more fun to wear and you know and you get the buzz from knowing you're helping with the sustainability challenge and you're not contributing to you know harming sentient beings that's that's a positive option but but you know individuals need those choices in front of them and the easier those choices are and the more available those choices are the quicker change can happen and i'm you know i sort of share that hope that really feels like we're at the start of a a major systemic shift in those consumer choices and you know i don't know if this is what stella mccartney meant but you know one day hopefully we won't really need to use the word sustainable because just everything Mm -hmm. will be right it will be the assumption i've even joked before that you know, one day we won't need the word vegan, right? Yeah. Because just yeah, it will I be so, so obvious. Just we don't have a word now for not being a cannibal, right? Because because <laughs> 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 our because our social default is so strong in that space that you don't need a word for going the other way. So I, I do think that will change. But the other thing I was interested in, I, my understanding of your work with Ethos is it it's focused on the, I guess the consumer primarily and helping them think about those choices and moving through them. What do you think about the other? levels of or the levers of change we can pull whether it's institutional policy law you know getting the un to shift from a universal declaration of human rights to a universal declaration of sentient rights or you know those sort of more institutional levers do you think there's how do you balance that individual choice versus institutional change thing and does ethos try and play into that latter story as well or is it more about individual consumption choices um i i think they are very connected. I think institutional changes come about because of individual changes and and really respond to what, you know, governments for the people by the people. So um, those changes happen. I mean, and I think we're already seeing that um, we're definitely more focused on the consumer side so that people can feel empowered and make those decisions. But because of consumer demand, you know, companies are changing how, how they view their roles and their responsibilities. They're changing their offerings. They're changing their bylaws. I mean, you know, they're 
a little bit every day. And I definitely see a, a time where there's widespread institutional change and policy change. Um, we're seeing some of that. I mean, California just banned combustion, sale of combustion engines. I mean, so I think it's not till 2035, but uh, changes like that really signal that consumers are open and willing. And I, and I think we are, I think, I mean, we know government and even within business, I mean, that stuff takes a while. Like you were saying, like, let's just shut down factory farms. You know, McDonald's would go out of business tomorrow if it, if all of a sudden it had no access to beef or pork or chicken, companies are struggling to keep up with that demand. I mean, they would not, they would just not have, they would have to take like every vegan nugget on the planet to fill their, (laughs) their orders. Um, I'm not, I'm not saying that justifies them uh, continuing to sell that, but. Well, should we give them a month month or two to transition? (laughs) It's, it's, It's I think it's years. And I think the, that, um, you know, we look at like, I mean, they're all tied, right? Like you don't think McDonald's affects your life. I don't think it affects my life, but it's this economic system that if they collapse, then so much collapses around it too. So we have to keep um, business um, kind of running as best we can. I mean, yeah. we're seeing the, the Jobs, effects taxes, right now. you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, but as these options, I mean, become more readily available and scalable, and then uh, there are policy changes that allow for or, or encourage um, the the more frequent uh, adoption of of the sustainable choice. I think it's going to just become the norm, and it's. I mean, decades. I, I I feel like by the end of my lifetime, I'll see a completely different world than than what I imagined when I went vegan and vegetarian as a teenager, it will be all that and more. It's already more like I live, I was uh, a couple weeks ago, my daughter wanted like vegan ice cream after school. And like, we we had a tough decision to make because there's like five vegan ice cream spots within, within a few blocks of each other. And I was like, what world am I living in? Like I could never have dreamed, um, that it would look like this, you know, by, by this age of my life. And so um, if we've come this far and it, and I think it sometimes feels like we're, it's moving so slow, but what's that saying? I think it's like attributed to CS Lewis that like um, day to day, nothing changes. But when you look back, like everything has changed and it's, there's so much that has shifted and, you know, I mean, being a long time vegan and, and, kind of I share your philosophy I mean I would love to see it just eradicated tomorrow and more front and center and I've, I've become more patient with that I've um less the activist <laughs> these days and more trying to just um give people options but seeing people who I never thought would say I'm done with meat or you know I don't drink milk anymore or whatever um, it's just shocking to me. And what's also really shocking uh, is uh, the amount of flexitarianism, which I thought was just kind of this made up whatever. Like I didn't really give it much credit. I thought it was kind of a cop out, but I've seen it a lot, um, particularly with my daughter's friends and families and um, her best friend's family's favorite burger place. It just happens to be a vegan burger place here in LA. And like, uh, I have not yet got in line at a coffee shop and heard a person order cow's milk, which is shocking to me. And I'm quite certain most of those people 
uh, are not even vegan, but like oat milk is the default in Los Angeles right now. It just kind of blows my mind. So it's maybe flexitarianism is that foot in the door and, uh, and people are really open to it. And, um, and maybe they're more open to it than we even think, but there's just, you know, you sit down at dinner. I was at a uh, event last weekend and it was like a catered event and there, there wasn't a vegan option on the table. And I just thought it was so shocking. So if I'm a person who puts oat milk in my coffee, but I sit down at this dinner and all that's there is like chicken or pasta with cheese, like, and I'm hungry, I'm going to eat one of those things. I went and had the chef make me something (laughs) special, but it was shocking that in LA there wasn't, there wasn't an option, but I, I see where if there are choices, people are going to make them for their health, for the planet, for the animals. Yeah. And I share your view that the all these different levers and levels of change are interconnected too. The one thing that frustrates me is when people use this institutional change story as an excuse for not making change themselves. <laughs> so it's like, oh, the, the top seven corporations are the problem or governments are the problem. So I I won't I don't need to make any change. So I can <laughs> I can object to this system while continuing to fund it myself. You're like, well, why are you doing that? But if we put that to one side, I think they are all richly connected, but partly because as you say, you know, the consumers that are reading and consuming ethos content you know are thinking about better consumption decisions and that ripples through corporations and you know and and drives change in its own right but the people reading that aren't just consumers they're also voters and maybe standing for office and maybe a staffer in a political office and maybe a manager in a company or maybe you know drafting a policy document you know those all of the institutions we're talking about are made up of people who are also consuming your content. So, you know, each individual can play all sorts of different roles as a consumer and in the political sphere and the corporate sphere. Um, and I think we underestimate how, you know, rapidly those ripples flow out and how much they pick up and connect. And as you said, you know, it can feel like things are moving very slowly, but then you look back and you realize how much has changed. And I think you can also reach major tipping points too, where you get to a certain point, you're sort of 5% of the way there, 8% of the way there, 10% of the way there. And that's enough for it just to, you know, start to switch really quickly. And then we really will need, you know, I'd love to have the problem of how are we going to manage the transition because McDonald's is going to run out of pork. Wouldn't that be a a great problem to have? But then, you know, more people are thinking about those transition plans and practically how can we help not just have consumers with better choices, but have farmers and companies and food systems with better choices to switch as well and help them through that transition. So yeah, it's it's a hopeful vision. Well, look at um, a great example is Burger King uh, recently tested some vegan pop-ups. And and I think, where is it? Austria, Germany, somewhere uh, over there. They're now defaulting to their vegan burger. I think when you, and I think that's ongoing. I I could be wrong, but when you come into the store, unless you specify um, meat. And I mean, that's about as forward looking as, as it gets in my mind that yeah, they're switching the default. Digi- they're switching the default. So, like, is there a day where they're like, "There's no more pork"? I think, I think that happens, and I think it happens that way. That uh, slowly they add more, then slowly they switch it to the default, and then one day they just—it's just like they discontinue anything. Like, well, we're pulling it off the menu; it doesn't sell anymore. And it's not necessarily a big uh, to do. I mean, I'm sure for lots of people, it will be um, a most uh, emotional day. And But I think that's how it happens. It's like you slowly start adding more. Um, and it's just the same way too. If you want to eat healthy, 
you don't keep putting junk food on your plate, right? You keep adding more salad and more whole grains and beans. So there's no more room for the fried chicken. And then one day it's not there at all. And it's just kind of like, oh yeah, I'm just eating healthier now. And I think, um, I think Burger King, who would have thought that they, (laughs) that they would kind of jump out ahead as the, the big leader in this movement, but they've shown strong, uh, strong and continuous signs uh, in that direction. And it seems like that seems the easiest way to do it. I mean, you can't just turn it off tomorrow. You've got to acclimate your audience to these new uh, products and new tastes. And then you've got to kind of say, okay, see, you like it. It's the default. And then just slowly take the other stuff off the menu. Agree. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you and thank, thank you again you. for what ethos is doing to try and nudge us in that positive direction is there anything else you'd like to add to the conversation before i let you get on with your day or and and also how can people follow you and learn about your work and pick up with ethos content thank you thank you so much uh great way to start the day um we're <clears throat> excuse me we're at the dash ethos.co on instagram we're at uh, elevate your ethos um and you can find us uh on uh, LinkedIn at the Ethos Co. and also on Twitter at the Ethos Co. Brilliant. I'll include all of those links in the show notes. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's been a privilege to hear your sort of philosophical journey and to thank understand you. what you're doing to help make the world a better place. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Jill. Likewise. Take care. Take care. Stay in touch. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?